Okay, we are reading in in uh, Hebrews chapter two, in Hebrews chapter two, and remember what this book is about. This is a book <clears throat> that is written to Jews living around Jerusalem, but not in Jerusalem, <clears throat> and it's in about 66 to 68 A.D. So it's it's roughly 30 years after the death of Jesus. They've come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and they are now thinking about going back into Judaism because the pressure, the persecution is beginning to increase upon them. So what the warning to them is, through the author of the book of Hebrews is, this is not an option for you. If you go back, you're going to die. You're going to die physically if you go back. Not spiritually. It's not spiritual death, but you're going to die physically because you're going to end up in Jerusalem You're going to end up under the 70 A.D. judgment that's going to come under Jerusalem, though he didn't know the exact year it was going to come. And you're going to end up dying physically. And you're going to end up losing your reward in the kingdom to come. Turning back from the Lord is not an option, he's saying. And so in Hebrews chapter 2, we read last time, verses uh, uh, the first portion, verses 1 through 4, where he gives them a warning. And... What he had covered in Hebrews chapter 1 is he showed that Jesus in his deity was superior to angels because there was a lot of respect for angels, but he's saying it's superior to angels. He's superior to angels. Then he gives them a warning in the beginning of chapter 2, and then starting in verse 5 of chapter 2, he is giving them now, he's, he's telling them that Jesus was even superior to angels in his humanity. He's superior to angels. And he's going to quote, so throughout the remainder of chapter 2, starting in in verse uh, 5 of Hebrews chapter 2, all the way through the end of chapter 2, he's quoting three passages from the Old Testament. In verse 6, he's going to be quoting from Psalm 8, 5 through 7. In verse 12, he's going to be quoting from Psalm 22, 22. And in verse 13, he's going to be quoting from Isaiah Isaiah 8, verse 18. So he heavily quotes from the Old Testament. Again, another indication that this was written to Jewish believers. Because if they were just Gentile believers, the Old Testament wouldn't be impacting their lives. It's not something upon which they're basing things. So in verse 5, For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? or the Son of Man, that you are concerned about Him. You have made Him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned Him with glory and honor, and have appointed Him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under His feet. For in subjecting all things to Him, He left nothing that is not subject to Him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. So he is starting out, he's saying, let's look at mankind. We are comparing here, He's going to compare here Jesus to angels in his humanity. And he starts out just looking at human beings, man. He says, he did not subject to angels the word to come, the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. The messianic world, the ages to come, he has committed to human beings. He says in in verse 6, but one has testified somewhere saying, I love the way he cites chapter and verse from the Old Testament. But one has said somewhere saying, and then he starts quoting the Old Testament. 
So much for chapting, for quoting exact chapter and exact verse. Now, they didn't have exact verse numbers in those days, but he could have certainly said, as David has said, he didn't even say, someone said somewhere, and he starts quoting. This is what the scriptures did. He says, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him? And this is from Psalm 8, verses 5 through 7. What is man that you remember him or the son of man that you're concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. So he's talking about human beings. He says, why are you so concerned about him? You've made him a little while lower than the angels, meaning that human beings can't do what angels do. Angels just pop into rooms and pop out. I mean... You know you, you, you know, you see them one instant and the next instant they're gone. That doesn't normally happen with people. All right? This is what angels do. He says, you've made them have a little bit lower power, but you've committed to them the world to come. And he says, he says in, you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have appointed him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. And what they're doing is they're talking about in Genesis 1.28, what he said to Adam and Eve, he says, go, God bless them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here's what he says. He says, you go and you dominate the earth. You are to rule over all the earth. It is everything is under your feet. This is what he tells humankind. Now, you don't see that anymore. And that's why he says in verse in verse eight, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we don't see yet. We do not yet see all things subject to him because it was given in the Garden of Eden and man lost it due to the fall. Due to the fall, he lost being over the earth, dominating the earth like this as it was originally intended, and this has now been usurped by Satan. Man still has the title deed, but Satan has moved in, and Satan runs this world in which we live. That is going to be done away with in the Messianic kingdom. After the seven years of tribulation, this will be restored to mankind. Mankind will again rule over the earth, as was originally intended. That's what he says. He says this is what he's done for men. This is what he's done for humankind. And he says, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you're concerned about him? He says, you love him so much. Now he says, but we don't yet see this fulfilled. One day it will be fulfilled. Now, now he starts talking about the son of God. So reading from verse nine, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Okay, so now it's speaking of Jesus in his humanity. It uses the name Jesus. The name Jesus is speaking now of the humanity of Jesus. The Jesus became man. God became man in Jesus Christ. He says, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Think about that. But we do see him. We do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. 
None of the believers here that he is speaking with saw Jesus with their own eyes. He says that up in in verse 4 of this same chapter. He says, we are second generation believers. This has been told to us by the witnesses who saw it with their own eyes. They are second generation believers. We are thousandth generation believers. He says, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Look at what God does. He personalizes this. He says, we do see him. In other words, this is present tense. We see Jesus who was made for a little while lower than the angels. This is what I'm talking about when we take the Lord's Supper. That in our mind's eye, we envision Jesus dying on the cross. He says, remember me. Remember my my death on the cross. Well, Lord, how can I remember you? I didn't happen to be there that day 2,000 years ago. He says, remember me. He personalizes it. He says, we. And he puts it in the present. In the present form. We speak as Jesus of Jesus as being alive because he lives, because he's risen from the dead. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. In his humanity, he was made lower than the angels. He did on occasion slip through their midst and disappear from the midst when they tried to kill him. But in his humanity, he walked places. He didn't just say, oh, I want to be up in Capernaum. You guys walk, I'll meet you there. Poof. And he's over there in Capernaum. He didn't generally do that sort of thing. You know, sometimes he would send them across the, the lake. And, and even he had to walk across. He had to go across the lake. Now, he'd walk on it. But he, he still had to, had to go there. You know, there were physical boundaries upon him. Angels don't have those physical limitations. That's why he was made a little bit lower than the angels in his humanity, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor. He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death. It was suffering that allowed him to be crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. By the grace of God. This taste of death doesn't mean just dip or quick thing. It means appropriate or carry. He carried death for everyone. So just imagine this. When you die, you are going to die for yourself. He carried death for everyone. This whole image of death is that we are promoted to glory. This whole thing that we are promoted to glory, that we're going to talk more about this. But it says, all of this happened. He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Because of the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory, uh, glory and honor. It is the suffering that we go through in life. It is the pains that we go through in life that are the things that actually prosper us. This is what it is in the Christian life. It is not the successes. It is not winning all the the awards and the uh, the, the accolades that make us what we are in Christ. It is the suffering that makes us what we are in Christ. It is the crying out to God and saying, Lord, help me. And seeing God deliver the daily experiences of life and then the seasons seasons of suffering that He brings upon all human beings. The seasons of suffering that He brings upon them. He says this is what is going to crown Him. This is what's crowned Him with glory and honor. This is what will promote you. This is what will make you stronger are the sufferings in life. If you've got something that ails you, if you've been abused... Say you've been sexually abused growing up 
and you think that this has just marred my life, this has hurt me so much, things are so bad because of this, just remember, not that the, th- that the experience was good, not that you would want that for anyone, but that experience can be the experience that takes you, that makes you all the stronger. That is the amazing thing about the gospel, that the sufferings that we experience are the things that actually bring the crowning glory. The sufferings that we experience. This is the message of the gospel. And you, you say, he says, he, had, he tasted death for everyone. Why did he have to go through this suffering? Think about this. Why did he have to go through the suffering? Look at what the Bible says. Very succinctly, it says it right here. In verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. He perfected the author of their salvation, of our salvation, Jesus, through sufferings. He perfected him. Why? Why did it have to be that way? He tells us. It is right here in the beginning of verse verse 10. For it was fitting. Period. That's it. It was fitting. God felt that's the way it should be. So if you are trying to find out from God why are all these things happening and trying to figure out why all these pains come in your life, just remember, it is fitting. It is fitting. This is the whole message in the book of Job. In the book of Job, his three friends come and they start trying to give him this rationale that this is coming upon you for sins that you have committed. And then this fourth friend comes and says, it's coming upon you for things that you will commit in the future. And then God comes and says, I am who I am, and that's all it is. I am the one who created all this. I am who I am. And in that, Job had to be content. There was no understanding. God didn't offer to Job an explanation for why these things came upon him. None. Just God being who he he is had to be sufficient for Job. And it was. Once Job caught a glimpse of God and who he is, that was sufficient. You want to have understanding in everything? There's going to be many things that come against you in life. There's going to be many pains that come upon the people that you love. And remember, here's the explanation. It is was fitting. That's the explanation that he gives concerning Jesus. It was fitting. And because in many ways we won't understand. You know, God is up in heaven. God is great. We are limited. We don't understand all the things that he is doing. We don't understand all the intricacies of what he's doing in our lives. But just remember, why does this happen, Lord? It was fitting. I don't understand why good people trying to seek God go through real pains in their life. I have no idea. All I know, it was fitting as it was for his son. It was fitting for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Jesus was perfected through sufferings. I thought he was already made perfect. He was made more perfect through sufferings. Through sufferings. He perfected the author. That means the one who has gone before us has been perfected through sufferings. All those, the scriptures say, all those who desire to walk godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. All of us. 
who desire to walk godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. God has taken man. He set him up here on earth. Man has been even, there has been a little bit lower than the angels. There's going to come a day where he's going to judge angels. Did you know that in the kingdom to come, human beings will judge angels? You'll be sitting up there with a, probably a white robe, not a black robe, and a, you know, and you'd be banging on something, and you're going to be judging angels. You're going to be judging fallen angels. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels? This is what's going to happen. But then he says, of the Son, the Son was perfected through sufferings. The Son was perfected through sufferings. For both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, in verse 11, are all from one Father, for which, for which reason He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus looks at us and calls us His brothers. This is a big deal. This is really a big deal. I remember when I got married, and my wife is the youngest of seven siblings. So all of her siblings had children by the time that she and I were married. And so all of a sudden, I was an uncle to like an army of people. (laughs) And I remembered I was finding myself introducing them saying, this is, this is, uh, uh, um, this is Shireen's niece or this is Shireen's nephew. Well, now they were my nieces and nephews. You see what I mean? There was this transition that it, it hadn't yet hit me. And I remember once one of my nieces looked at me like, that's how you introduce me? As Shireen's niece? I mean, I'm your niece. And she's absolutely right. I just, it, it just hadn't dawned on me yet. And, and that, that, that I was all of a sudden, on that day of my wedding, I became an uncle to this, this army of, of little kids running around. And, and uh, it says, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers, his sisters. He's not ashamed. I mean, you know, with all our faults, we want to introduce him. We, want, we, we, we would introduce ourselves, you know, well, I'm related to him through his death. It's my brother. This is my sister. He gladly brings us on in. I mean, he is the guy. Who is doing all of this? Saying, in verse 12, I will proclaim your name among my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to proclaim your name among my brethren. Jesus is the one who reaches out. I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death, he might render powerless him who had power over death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus freed us from the worry of death because when we die, we live forever in him. For when we die, we live forever in him. In 1 Corinthians 15, 55, it says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? In Philippians 1, Paul is saying, it's... He says, it's better for me to be here with you so that I can share my faith, but I'd rather be with him. He says in, in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It is better. Death has no power over us. The, the, Satan cannot touch the life of the believer. When the believer dies, this is something where, where, where God has said it is time. The life of the unbeliever is in the hands of Satan. 
The only exception to this is when one has been excommunicated. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 through 5, it says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. That means that a guy was sleeping with his father's wife. So his father had remarried somebody, and this, this young person was sleeping with his father's wife. You know, the church got pretty nasty. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, although absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him and have so committed, who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to turn him back over to Satan and let Satan beat him up for a while. And Satan may even take his life, but he's not going to lose his salvation. That's what he's talking about. Jesus comes and he delivers us from the fear of death. He delivers us from the sting of death. This is what he's talking about. And then he says, he says in, in verse 16, For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Jesus took on humanity. He did not take on uh, uh, angelity. You know, he didn't take on the part of being an angel. He took on the part of being a man. He took on the part of being a human. He took on humanity. He reached out. There's no deliverance for fallen angels. One third of the angels fell with Satan, the Bible says. And those are the demons that are doing the work of Satan. One third of the angels fell. Jesus never had a redemption for them. There is no redemption for them. He looked upon human beings and he said, my redemption is for them. He says, therefore, he had to be made in the likeness of his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation. So this whole idea of propitiation is to satisfy the wrath of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Jesus lived as a human being. He underwent every temptation that we undergo. Yet he did not sin. But because of that, he is a sympathizer with us. He is not just some benevolent overlord who says, oh, let me save that peon over there. No, he can sympathize with our struggles. The whole message of the gospel is this. It is God reaches out to us. We who deserve the judgment against us. We who deserve the judgment against us. God is, in a judicial sense, has every right to strike us from His presence. Every right to see us die and live in hell forever. Every right to do this. But the message of the Gospel is, I will reach out to you who are in need and I will give of myself for you. So what was the cost that He had to pay? What has value to God? Remember, gold has no value to Him. Silver has no value. Money has no value to Him. The thing most valuable to Him is His own Son. The picture of a father and his own son, of a parent and their own child, because a parent will die a thousand deaths for the life of their child. They'll do this over and over again. 
any normal parent would give their life in an instant for their child. Many times over, God takes that which is of most value to to him. And he says, I will give this for you. My life for your life. My well-being for your well-being. The message of the gospel is that the strong sacrifices themselves and everything they have and their lives for that which is weak. Many people ask me, why am I so protective of the unborn? You say, well, this is political. It has nothing to do with politics. I love life because abortion is antithetical to the gospel. Think about this. I give myself to you. Though you are judicially doomed to death, I control every aspect of you. But Jesus says, I give my life for you. Look at abortion. It's just the opposite. You give your life for me. You give your life for my convenience. You give your life. And we so justify it that it's not even a life. Yeah, it's kicking inside of me, but it's not a life. Judicially, by the law of the land, a person can make that decision. And I understand that and I respect that they have the legal right to make that decision. But do you see how it's antithetical to the gospel? The whole message of the gospel is the opposite. That I sacrifice my life for you. Though I have judicial power over you, though I can claim over you anything I want to claim, that you're not even a life, even though you're kicking inside, you're not a life. And the law supports me in this. It's opposite of the gospel. The gospel is, I give my life for you. I give my well-being for you. I give my convenience for you. It's the same thing in premarital sex. In premarital sex, it's all about me and my desire. It is never in the other's best interest. Never. It is never in the other's best interest. The total self-donation for the other is not seen in abortion. It is not seen in premarital sex. It is not seen in so many things that go along in our society. The gospel is so different. If this word, if this thought, if this action is not in the other's best interest, it is not the love of God. It is not the gospel. The gospel is always that my well-being is going to be given for you. That His Son comes and says, you're my brothers. I will proclaim your name. I will undergo suffering for you. I will undergo the shame of death for you. I will go the, undergo the shame of suffering for you. God demonstrates this. And He says, this is what He calls us to be. I understand that the unbeliever cannot know this, cannot understand this. The unbeliever cannot understand this. The gospel, this message of the gospel is so foreign to what the world has. But domination, the strong over the weak, is foreign to the gospel. And this is what you see in the world. This is why women are persecuted by men all over the world, because men are stronger. And men will dominate women because they are just physically stronger. This is what happens all over the world. But that's antithetical to the gospel. The gospel message is just the opposite. That I give my life for you. I will serve you as my wife. 
I give my life for you. I will not touch somebody else's daughter and exercise my strength over them. The domination, the whole spirit of domination is foreign to the gospel. It is foreign to the message of the gospel. The gospel message is clear. I give my life for you. It is not about my convenience anymore. It is about the other. It is about the other person. This is what he's demonstrating here. His suffering for us. The message of the gospel is clear. Domination is foreign to the gospel. It is, I give my life for you. This is why, to the believer, to the believer I speak, abortion is antithetical to the gospel. It is not about convenience, my convenience over the life of another. It is all about the life of the other. It is everything about the life of the other. The whole spirit of the gospel, premarital sex, the whole spirit is in your best interest. I've counseled young people all over the place. And one guy said, you know, I'm with my girl. I just, you know, I just need this. I counseled with him for about a week, every day. Finally, I said, would you grow up? There's so many young people that are wrestling about, Lord, I want to go to the mission field. I want to be used of you. And here you are thinking totally about yourself and what's going through your own mind. This is wrong what you are doing. This is wrong. What you're doing is not right. The treasure that you have in a marital covenant that my life is totally for you cannot happen. The innocence of that relationship that comes in a marriage, cannot happen outside the bonds of marriage. It cannot. It is a lie. On my website, under the personal topics, there's the audio messages. There's a series called Scriptural Sexual Ethics. It is a six-part series. Each part is like about 30 minutes. It's a six-part series called Scriptural Sexual Ethics. And you start in part one, and you work your way to part two, part three, and so forth on down. Six parts. And it will deal with issues like this. But the whole message is the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel. That our lives are to be extended toward the other in the sense that I give my life for you. I give my well-being for you. That is the message of the cross. Before glory must come the cross. Before resurrection comes the cross. Suffering for our sake is what he demonstrates here. And he calls us brethren. And then he sends us forth into the world and he says, go do what I've shown you. Let's pray. Abba, Father, I thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. I pray for these young people that you would so sear their hearts this day that they would remember these words. The truth of the gospel is one in power, giving themselves for the weaker. Father, that they would extend themselves as Jesus did, that they would even suffer for those who are weaker. Father, I pray that these young men would would be able to grab hold of this, that if this word, if this thought, if this action is not in the other's best interest, it is not the love of God. Father, I pray that the message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ giving himself for his brethren, that the strong giving himself for the weak would 
flow through to the hearts here. Father, I pray for these young women who have had abortions. I pray, Lord, that from this day you would get hold of their hearts, that that would not happen again. Father, that they would not dominate the life of another. Father, I pray for the young men here, that they would not dominate the lives of women. Father, that it would be a self-sacrificing life would be the message of the gospel in their hearts. Father, I pray for their lives, for good marriages, where there is a self-sacrifice, one for the other, one for the other self-sacrifice, and that your mercies would abound. Father, I pray that you would take those who are here and make them different because of the message of the gospel. And I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.